name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And let us pray together as our Savior has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. St. Benedict, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, hopefully, uh, following this morning's conference, as well as Mass, I know we were out doing the, the rosary, praying the rosary on the walk. Hopefully, this has proved to be a good, fruitful time for you in which you're growing in your relationship with the Lord and, uh, and with His church. Those two things always go hand in hand together. But we'll continue to talk about St. Benedict and how he really is that model of religion for us, that virtue of religion. And we continue to use that theme of St. Paul, be an imitator of me as I am of Christ. And we all have favorite saints. Uh, I mean, I could kind of go through my list for you, but we all have our favorite saints. And what attracts us to these saints is that these saints, um, you know, they gave their lives for Christ. They completely gave themselves over to the Lord. And you have the ones who were born, they seem like they were born into sainthood, somebody like St. Therese. And then you have the ones where it came a little more, it was a little more difficult, somebody like St. Augustine. And I mention those two because those are two of my favorite saints, right? Um, yeah, great saints, great saints to try to pattern and modern, or model our lives after. So St. Benedict and model of religion. So, so far we've had the theology, kind of gone into all the theology. And with us, with this, we can see the ideal of religion. And as you know, though, the beauty of our faith shows over and over that the ideal never remains an abstract impossibility. The incarnation makes the perfect ideal a concrete fact, makes it lived out in the midst of the imperfections of this world, our fallen world. And the saints for us, they're shining examples of this. For the virtue of religion in the life of a Catholic man, then as I said last night, I have chosen, and we've already reflected upon this morning, St. Benedict, the founder of Western monasticism, a man who can easily say, has played a major role in saving civilization multiple times in history, either personally or through his sons and daughters in religion. So St. Benedict in his writings, his lifestyle, his prayer, his legacy, what he does is he gives us a good example of the virtue of religion, and he does so lived out in a saintly way. Let's take a look at a little bit of background of St. Benedict given to us uh, from another man who I think in 200 years will be speaking about, the church will be speaking about, well, you and I won't be speaking about him, but the church in 200 years will be looking back and I believe they will say, and he was a saintly man, and I think um, they will put him amongst the academics in, ter in terms of the great names that the church speaks of. People like Augustine, people like Thomas Aquinas, people like Albert the Great, St. Bonaventure, right? Robert Bellarmine, and that being um, our, our, our emeritus pope, 
uh, Pope Benedict XVI. And Pope Benedict XVI in a Wednesday audience, this was April 9, 2008. As I read this short biography, or as I read the short biography, you call that the most important source on Benedict's life is the second book of St. Gregory the Great's Dialogues. So it's not a biography in the classical sense in accordance with the ideas of his time by, by giving the example of a real man, St. Benedict in this case, Gregory wished to illustrate the ascent to the peak of contemplation which can be achieved by those who abandon themselves to God. That's the virtue of religion. He therefore, goes, he therefore gives us a model for human life in the climb towards the summit of perfection. St. Gregory the Great also tells in his book on the dialogues of the many miracles that are worked by this great saint, St. Benedict. And here too, he does not merely wish to recount something curious, but he wants to show how God, by admonishing, helping, and even punishing, intervenes in practical situation in situations in every man's life. Gregory's aim was to demonstrate that God is not a distant hypothesis placed at the origin of the world, but is present in the life of man, and how God is present in the life of every man, whether he knows it or not, right? Pope St. John Paul II used to say, kind of one of his central themes to his theology was that uh, man finds his ultimate meaning in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's a true statement because the ultimate meaning of life, we cannot you know, truly be satisfied until we rest in God. As, as Augustine says, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee, O Lord. O Lord. And so man finds his ultimate meaning in the person of Jesus Christ because it is by Christ and through Christ and only in Christ in which we can come to know eternal salvation, Acts 4.12. So that's the only way in which we can truly find meaning, our ultimate meaning in the person of Jesus Christ. So this is what we hear from St. Gregory the Great speaking out the, about the life and, and Pope, uh, Pope Emeritus Benedict was reflecting on this at one of his Wednesday audiences. St. Benedict was born around the year 480. As St. Gregory said, he came ex provincia Nursiae, from the province of Norcia. His well-to-do parents sent him to study in Rome. However, he did not stay long in the Eternal City. As a fully plausible explanation, Gregory mentions that the young Benedict was put off by the dissolute lifestyle of many of his fellow students and did not wish to make the same mistakes. He wanted only to please God. Soli dei placere desiderens. Thus, even before he finished his studies, Benedict left Rome and withdrew to the solitude of the mountains east of Rome. And after a short stay in the village of Enfide, where he, or for a time he lived with a religious community of monks, he became a hermit in the neighboring locality of Subiaco. He lived there completely alone for three years in a cave 
which had been the heart of the Benedictine monastery called the Sacro Specio, the Holy Grotto, since the early Middle Ages. The period in Subiaco, a time of solitude for God, with God, was a time of maturation for Benedict. It was here that he bore and overcame the three fundamental temptations of every human being. The temptation of self-affirmation and the desire to put oneself at the center. The temptation of sensuality. And lastly, the temptation of anger and revenge. In fact, Benedict was convinced that only after overcoming these temptations would he be able to say a useful word to others about their own situations of neediness. Thus, having tranquilized his soul, he could be in full control of the drive of his ego and thus create peace around him. Only then did he decide to found his first monasteries in the valley of Anio near Subiaco. In the year 529, Benedict left Subiaco and entered, the, entered in Monte Cassino. This decision was called for because he had entered a new phase of inner maturity and monastic experience. According to Gregory the Great, Benedict's exodus from the remote valley of the Anio to Monte Cassino, a plateau dominating the vast surrounding plain, which can be seen from afar, has a symbolic character. A hidden monastic life has its own reason, but a monastery also has its public purpose in the life of the church and of society, and it must give visibility to the faith as a force of life. Indeed, when Benedict's earthly life ended on the 21st of March in 547, he bequeathed with his rule and the Benedictine family he founded a heritage that bore fruit in the passing centuries and is still bearing fruit throughout the world. Three very short paragraphs. Pope Benedict gives us an entire life of St. Benedict. He gives us the highlights of all the most important aspects of the monk who wished, quote unquote, only to please God. That's all he desired to do, only to please God. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing to have on your headstone? He desired only to please God. And from that, that only to please God would fire all the other relationships that we have in our lives, right? Relationships as a son, right? Relationship as a brother, relationship as a father, as a husband, as a friend, all these different relationships. How beautiful would that be to simply say he only desired to please God and it would be expressed in a beautiful way in all these other relationships in one's life. So given what we said so far, this desire by itself shows that St. Benedict, he was a man of religion and not just because he began religious life in the West. Rather, he was a man of the virtue of religion because he put God first. That's really at the heart of it. He put God first, even before his own desires, his own studies, his own power, and his own influence. So the full citation from St. Gregory's prologue to St. Benedict's life shows this as well, and I share this with you now. 
There was a man of venerable life, blessed by grace and blessed in name, for he was called Benedictus or Benedict, who from his younger years carried always the mind of an old man, for his age was inferior to his virtue. All vain pleasure he condemned, and though he was in the world and might freely have enjoyed such commodities as it yields, yet he did not esteem it, nor the vanities thereof. He was born in the province of Nursia, an honorable parentage, and brought up at Rome in the study of humanity. But for as much as he saw many, as he saw many by reason of such learning to fall to dissolute and lewd life, he drew back his foot, which he had, as it were now, set forth into the world, lest entering too far in acquaintance with it, he likewise might have fallen into the dangerous and godless gulf. Wherefore, giving, such, giving over to his studies and forsaking his father's house and wealth with a resolute mind only to serve God, he sought for some place where he might attain to the desire of his holy purpose. So again, it's kind of a, a summation of the life of Gregory, uh, of uh, St. Benedict by the life of uh, St. Gregory the Great. But we also hear in those three paragraphs prior to that, I think he, he gives us not only the important highlights, but Pope Benedict kind of teaches us well. You know, Benedict's always the great teacher, and that's why I think he's going to be remembered for in, uh, in future generations. So by leaving Rome and seeking the solitude of what would have become, would become a monastery, what he does is he shows what each religious man and woman must remember, what each Catholic person must remember. When I say religious man and woman, I mean religious man and woman in the generic sense. We must always be on the lookout for God, for his will, and must always be ready and willing to follow him wherever he leads us, wherever he leads us, as well as however he leads us. So obviously, obedience itself is wrapped up with religion here. So obedience itself is wrapped up with religion here. I want to share two examples of, I think, men who... Um, who truly tried to practice uh, the virtue of religion. One is a saint and one I hope will soon be a saint. So the first one I'm gonna mention is um, a little, a little uh, medal I carry on my wrist is of one of our new saints who's a Pope, Pope St. Paul VI. Pope St. Paul VI was a very humble man, very quiet man. And he was a man who was elected as, as a successor of St. Peter during a very different, difficult time in the church. Whenever the church has a conference, uh, 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 a council, sorry, a council, whenever the church has a council, the years, probably about 15 years, 50 years following it, are very turbulent times. And we were able to see that with the Second Vatican Council. Very, very turbulent times. And I think one of the great graces that he was able to receive and to carry it out was he really... Um, help the church to avoid any major schism. Any major, major schism. I think that the, he helped the church to, to avoid anything such as that. 
But in the late 1960s, um, something was placed before him that was very, very difficult. Now remember in the 1960s, those turbulent times. In the 60s, um, so I was born in 64, so I was born during that time, so I don't remember too much of you know, society and the things that were going on, but I was able to see kind of the aftermath of that. But in uh, the late 1960s, we have the whole quote-unquote sexual revolution, and we always have to put that in quotes because it wasn't much of a revolution at all. And um, one of the questions that was being placed before the church was, was the church, was the Pope, the Holy Father, going to give permission for Catholics to use artificial contraception? In other words, the whole, it was all framed under the banner, will the, will the Pope give permission for the pill? Right. So under John the 23rd, uh, there was a small commission that had started to look at that because the pill had already been, um, there was already in society, people were already using it. Um, a woman could get the pill if she had an irregular menstrual cycle. No two menstrual cycles are the same. So anybody could get the pill, right? Had an irregular menstrual cycle. And so um, then it just became more and more, more people were, were using it. And so the question was, was the church going to give permission? John the 23rd established a small commission, and obviously John the 23rd passed away. He started the Second Vatican Council, didn't finish the Second Vatican Council, passed away before a definitive answer could be given. In comes Paul VI. Paul VI uh, continues the council, closes the council, but expands the commission to include religious and laity and it, people in the profession of doctors and scientists and people all over the place who were experts in, this, in these areas. And so the commission, when it came back, was going to recommend to Paul VI that the church should give permission uh, for Catholics to use artificial contraception, that it wasn't something that was sinful. Now, there was a smaller group five, of five people, and one of them was a, a Jesuit from the United States, last name was Ford. They dissented from that opinion. In other words, they said, no, you can't do this because this goes against God's plan uh, for the, the sanctity of human life, the passing on and the transition, transmission of human life. And so these things were placed before the Holy Father. Now, unfortunately, uh, people are how people are. And some of this information started to get leaked into the public. So many, many people were believing this was going to be, this is what's going to happen. Many people are doing it already, but just because they're doing it doesn't make it, um, doesn't make it right. As I'm sure many of you have said to your children before, well, if he jumps off the cliff, are you going to jump off the cliff yourself as well, right? Just because he's doing something foolish doesn't mean that you have to do it as well. So. Paul VI took this all to heart, took this all to prayer. And I think this is one of the beautiful ways we see that the Holy Spirit is watching over the church and she's guarding over the church and she's making sure that the church does not fall into error in the, in the areas of faith and morals. And so on July 25th, 1968, which is a feast of St. James the Greater, Paul VI issued, I think, one of the most beautiful encyclicals ever written. And the encyclical he, writ, he wrote was Humanae Vitae. Beautiful, beautiful. It's short, it's not very long. If you want to take a look at who, how people flesh it out, 
you look at the theology of the body by Pope St. John Paul II, because that kind of takes um, humanity vitae and it fleshes it all out in just an incredible way. So Paul VI was really a courageous man, and he was a man who was really swimming against the tide, and he knew that when he brought this out, he was going to be criticized by a lot of people, people outside the church, people inside the church, uh, cardinals and bishops and priests and religious and laity, all sorts of people criticized him for this. But Paul VI understood, you know, he had to act according to his conscience. His conscience had been properly formed. And he had to act and speak under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And he said there were some things that were going to happen if he did not do this. And some of the things I'll give you right now. He said, you know, if the church were to go down this rabbit hole, you know, allowing people to use contraception, he says, these are some of the things that we're going to say that we're going to see that will happen. He says, first of all, we're going to see an increase in divorce rate. Now, if we look back then, where divorce was hardly you hardly saw any divorce, and we come up to the present moment, we are about 50% divorce rate, Catholic and non-Catholic, close to 50%. So kind of check that one off. He also said that men will start to objectify women for their own selfish pleasures. Now look at that one. We're going back into the 60s. And from that until now, we have things like human trafficking, pornography is rampant, all sorts of things are all over the place where um, uh, uh, men are objectifying women objectifying men, objectifying the other, and treating the other as an object simply for my own personal selfish pleasure. Right? So Paul VI said that that was something that was going to happen as well. The other thing that, um, that Paul VI said that happened, he said this, was, this will actually increase abortions. Now, it was supposed to be the wonder pill. Everybody said, well, it's a wonder pill. It's going to allow us to uh, decrease abortions. Well, hello, the pill is an abortifacient. It's abortion causing, right? It's shutting somebody's body down and saying, don't do what your body naturally does. Don't do what your body has been made by God to do, to bring forth life, right? So rather than decreasing abortions, Abortions have just gone off the chart. Pope St. John Paul II said, if you want to, um, if you want to uh, solve the abortion problem in the world, he says, first, first you have to solve the contraceptive mentality problem in the world, because that's going right at life at its moment of conception. So there are a number of the things that Pope St. John Paul II, in his wisdom, said were going to happen. The one thing he did say, and he said other things too, but the one thing he did say was that if couples were faithful, if we did not give in to that, he said what we're going to see is we're going to see a blossoming, a flowering of marital, marital life. And so what sort of proof does a church have that we have seen that flowering and that blossoming of marital life? And I think, you know, the, 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 the statistics, we just look at the statistics, and here's some statistics. So as I said, 
right now we're approaching a 50% divorce rate, divorce rate that's inside the church and outside the church. However, couples that are faithful to God's plan for marriage, in other words, the marital act always has a unitive and the procreative aspect. They're always open to the gift of human life, right? Another way we might say that is couples who are faithful to natural family planning, right? Natural family planning. Um, he said we would see a, a flowering in marital life for those couples. Those couples have a divorce rate of about 2 to 4%. Compare that to 50%. 2 to 4%. In other words, they have a success rate of 96 to 98%, depending on what statistics that you look at. I see in that, I see just the wisdom of the church. And I see in that uh, the, the guidance of the Holy Spirit of the church. Because he had the world, he had this commission, he had all these people trying to tell them to do, to do all these things, but he never gave into it because he knew that what he was saying, what he was writing in Humana Vitae was it, that it was true that it was true. So I think what we see in, in Paul VI, who was a, man, a courageous man, if you look at him, I mean, he's, he's not much of anything. He's kind of a waif of a man, a little guy. But boy, was he ever strong and, cur and courageous. We even look at the word courage, you know, you, you parse it out, core, heart, agire, meaning to act with a heart. He was a courageous man. Second one I want to talk about is this one I said I, I hope someday will be a saint. And um, that's, the, that's my dad. And what I hope you can do, this is a little lesson I want you to do or a little exercise I want you to do. I want you to think about the people in your lives this evening uh, who have a, who've had a big positive impact on you. I want you to think who they are. And think about the people in your life who were pursuing holiness and the example that they gave you in their pursuit of holiness. So my dad was the one. And, um, you know, we, we kind of take a lot, uh, a, lot, long, lot along the, a lot of the features, the way we carry ourselves, the way we speak, the way we do all kinds of things um, boys do for their fathers, girls do for their mothers. And so I remember, you know, when I was growing up, I was 19 years old, and um, my dad was a teacher and a football coach, and all the boys played for him. And, three boys, three girls, all three boys played for him, and, and uh, we just were always around him. Even as a little kid, I was always around him, tagging along, doing whatever. And um, when I was 19 years old, I knew that I was called to be a priest. That's when I first experienced the call. But I knew it at that time, I just wasn't very mature, and I don't think there were really good resources in my parish in terms of priests that would encourage that vocation at the time. And trying to follow it in a clumsy way, I was never able to follow it properly. And um, so what happened was, you know, that was my vocation. I kind of took it and put it on the back burner. And going through college, I just started to do these things. Well, I want to do this, 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 I want to do this. So as I kind of got into the end of all this stuff, thinking of all the things that I wanted to do, I looked at the, the checklist of the things that I wanted to do. So I wanted to teach. I wanted to be a football coach. I wanted to get married. I wanted to have six kids. And I was like, check, 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 check. I wanted to do all the things that my dad, my dad did and who he was. That was really important to me. And 
my dad, what made him such a great man, and I think what made me want to be like him, was my dad was a great man of faith. And he was the complete opposite of his father. His father had no faith. And he never practiced a faith at all, anything like that. And he kind of poo-pooed faith. And, but my dad, when he moved out of the house, I eventually met my mom, got married, six kids. You know, he just, each and every day, his faith grew stronger and stronger and stronger. It was break his heart if one of us were to miss mass or if one of us were to say something disparaging about the, about the church or one of us would talk about kind of uh, straying off to, to one of the, you know, the uh, Protestant churches or stuff like that. It would just absolutely break his heart. Um, but he, everything he did, the person that he was, all went back to his faith. I think he was a somebody. I, I don't think he could give up here, get up here and give the same talk that I'm giving this evening. He didn't go to the seminary and study theology and stuff like that. But I think if he were to get up here and give a talk, he passed away in 99, but if he were to give up here and give a talk and give his own personal story, you would see a lot of what I'm saying in him. So he really was a man who practiced the virtue of religion. So one of the things I want you to think about tonight is think about maybe those icons in your life, those people in your life who've had a big impact on you and who would possibly be people that you say, I want to, I want to I want to be like him, right? That person has inspired me. It's a family member, teacher, somebody, somebody at church, whatever the case might be. Try to see who that person is. And then go deeper and say, what is it? What is it? What's there that attracts me so much to that person? What aspect of their life? For me, as I said, it was my father. And what attracted me to my father so much, the fact that he was my father, was his faith. He was a strong man of Catholic faith. So that's enough for, uh, for this session. We'll have another session in a little bit. And just in a moment, what we're going to do is we're going to have Eucharistic adoration. So we'll do exposition in just a second. We'll conclude our conference with a little prayer in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.